Now let's give ourselves over to God's Word as we all together place ourselves under it, including those members who are joining us by way of YouTube. If you have a Bible with you, if you brought it with you, if you're looking on at home or if you've got a device, let me ask you to please turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Ezra didn't have these words or this filled out truth in front of him when we'll consider his words in Ezra 8, but he knew what was true. We know more fully what is true, and we'll see that in Romans 8, verses 18 through 39. This is God's inerrant, infallible word for us. Paul writes, Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now let's turn our attention to Ezra 8, going from Romans 8 to Ezra 8. I printed the entire passage out for you there on page 5 of your bulletin so that you can follow along with me. We'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 36. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliahonu, the son of Zerariah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Haziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, and the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomoth, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bibai, Zechariah, the son of Bibai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Pakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the, san- of the sons of Adonachim, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeul, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zachar, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyrib, and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Kasaphia, namely, to send us ministers to the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering to the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks. 
and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' house in Israel at Jerusalem within the chamber of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them into Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this is a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word. I pray that you would make it clear to us, that you would bring into sharp focus whatever I make blurry. I pray that you would protect the people from whatever errors I may speak, and that you would embed deeply into them the truth of your word here. We trust you. We know that this is your work going forward, so we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've already seen the book of Ezra, that God is revealing himself to us in multifaceted ways. We have learned, and God is making sure that we relearn many things about him. And we do that, we're relearning and submitting ourselves to it because God keeps repeating some things about himself. And he keeps coming under and restating the truth that he's already stated. Review with me just briefly. We learn that he is patient. And we learn who it is that he's patient with. A stubborn and stiff-necked people. A people who continually drift from him. And we learn what his purpose is in his patience for those people. He's determined to rescue them over and over and over again. God is pursuing this drifting people for rescue. He goes after them to retrieve them from chapter 7 that we looked at last week until the end at chapter 10. We will see this again. God is going after the people who continue to drift from him. God's people's hearts grow cold and even hard, and God doesn't give up on them. But maybe the thing that stands out most in Ezra, because we've seen it in some way, matter, or form in just about every chapter, is how God has revealed himself to be this providentially sovereign ruler. He wants us to know he's revealing himself to us as one who stirs the hearts, as one whose hand is guiding every person and every event. We saw the stir of hearts in Ezra 1. We're seeing the hand of God guiding all that is in Ezra 7 and 8. And it's this, God's sovereign providence over all that we need to take with us this morning in 8 and in the next two weeks in 9 and 10. 
But chapter 8 gives us something else, something that we haven't really seen so far in Ezra. At least we haven't seen it as clearly as we see it here. And that's how a man, namely Ezra, understands, knows, realizes, receives the revelation of God about himself, and then engages his faith for what that truth means. God is sovereign. He is providentially over everything. What does that mean for Ezra as a man who believes that deep down in his bones? And what does it mean for me and you? That's the one thing I want us to take from our time together this morning. We've got to see not just God's sovereign providence, but how Ezra engages with it, what that means for him, how it informs everything he says and does, how it shapes him as a man. If we really believe that God rules over every circumstance from the mountaintop to the tragedies and the joy and the pain that come with both, if we know by faith that God's hand is behind and before it all, what does that mean for me and you? If by faith we believe it, then it should mean something that's manifest, something that people can see about us, at least those of us who call ourselves Christians. The truth God reveals about himself in Ezra should affect the way that you and I live, the way that you and I speak, the way that we see our world and the mess that it's in. There's a lot of detail in chapter 8, but we'll consider just two parts. God's providence and then Ezra's prayer. God's providence and then Ezra's prayer. Now, chapter 7 and 8 are very similar to chapters 1 and 2, and if you've been with us, you probably picked up the similarities. You've seen and felt the repetition. Where in chapter 1, we saw God reveal himself, as I said, as the stirrer of hearts. In chapters 7 and 8, we see him as the hand behind all that we see. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw how God provided the first wave of exiles and all that they needed in order to pursue communion of him, communion with him, and worship to him as a return to restore the temple and the altar. Here in chapter 7 and 8, with all of those names, God is continuing to do the same thing, providing the personnel and the pieces needed for his people to commune and worship him. God is the one who stirred the heart of King Cyrus in chapter 1. Do you remember that? God is the one whose hand was upon King Artaxerxes in chapter 7. So you're getting the picture that God is wanting us to know something about himself in the book of Ezra. The same truth about who God is is repeated to us in this book over and over. And it's a truth that if we take any time to meditate on it, and even if we see how Ezra and by God's spirit, the inspiration of God himself, casts it for us in these 10 chapters of Ezra, it begins to look like a diamond with many facets, but the same truth. And we begin to understand and even appreciate the beauty of God's providence as he reveals himself here for us. So this too is a revelation about God himself. We know him and we love him, but he rules us for our good. Now remember, from chapter 1 to chapter 7, 80 years have passed. So many of those who took that first trek and that first way from Babylon to Jerusalem back in chapter 1, many of them are dead. So now it's their children and their grandchildren that Ezra is going to. And so what we see about God and his providence and his commitment to rescue and retrieve his people is that he never gives up. We see his long-suffering faithfulness through his providence. 
we see how he's still committed to stirring hearts and moving his hand for the sake of his people. God is committed to his people even when his people, just in our book, have shown him over and over and over again for three plus generations, over decades and decades, how squishy and unfaithful and uncommitted they are. And yet God is showing us in chapter 8, and he began in chapter 7, I'm still coming after them. I'm still committed to them. Their unfaithfulness does not directly relate to my faithfulness to them. And I want that truth, if we get it, to comfort us, to comfort all of us. But particularly, what about you and your constant battle with perhaps a besetting sin or a difficult relationship that you just can't seem to muster up the power to bring God the glory in that relationship? Maybe you're heartbroken because one of your precious children who you raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord appears to be walking, drifting, growing cold towards him. How does that truth begin to comfort you then? It begins to comfort you because you know God's committed to you. And regardless of your unfaithfulness to him, even in long seasons, regardless of what appears to be true of your grown child, and the decisions they make, even for long seasons, you have to believe that God doesn't forget his people. God doesn't forget you. Briefly look at how God is revealing himself to us again in this way. I didn't include this verse in your bulletin, but it's the last verse of chapter 7, uh, and it's verse 28. This, is, this shows us how and why we got all those tongue-twisting names in verses 1 through 14 in chapter 8. The last sentence there in chapter 7, verse 28. Let me read it. And remember with me, this is Ezra speaking. And he says, I took courage for the hand of my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Okay, so God's inspiring his word in order to reveal something about himself to us. And what he has Ezra write is God's hand was on me. And it was because of God's providential sovereignty that Ezra then was able to gather leading men to travel with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. Another way we see God's faithfulness is in the list of names through verse 20. Again, these are God's people. They have roots. They have a heritage. They have a claim on God's covenant promises. So when you're reading your Bible, and although the names may be hard to pronounce, even in your mind, and reading all those begats that are there can become laborious. We want to remember that God doesn't waste words when he inspires his word for us. So that's there for a reason. He's communicating something to you and me with all of those difficult names. We considered it in chapter 2. You might remember. What's he communicating to us? That God knows us by name. There's an intimacy to God and his knowledge of us. He's invested in us. God is telling that about himself. He's telling you and me. He knows his people he knows you. But we saw when Ezra decided to camp on the first leg of the trip that it was time to take roll, so to speak. Now remember, Ezra is leading over 2,000 people from Babylon to Jerusalem. Probably more like uh, 3,500 to 4,000 if you count all the women and children. So he wanted to know who was with him. It's kind of like when we go to camp. We have to stop for a minute. We've got to take a head count so we don't leave somebody at Walmart much as we'd like to at times. He noticed an integrated role, an integral role for 
proper temple worship. That was the Levites. And he was heading to Jerusalem without them. Verses 16 to 18, he names them. And it's again in verse 18 that I want to look. Ezra attributes to the hand of their God that the Levites were now joining the second wave of God's people going from Babylon to Jerusalem. Another repetition, right? God's wanting to get something through our heads. He wants us to know that if he's calling his people to himself, he's going to equip his people with all they need in order to commune and worship him. Now jump down with me to the last part of verse 31. There Ezra says again, The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. That by the way just means on our way, the journey that we're about to take. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, Ezra was getting ready to lead these thousands of people, and Ezra was carrying enormous wealth with these thousands of people. And he's admitting here in verse 31 that this is going to be a dangerous journey. This will be part of Ezra's prayer that we're going to look at in a minute. But here in verse 31, Ezra attributes God's care and protection of them to something remarkably practical. Think of it for a minute. You've got a dangerous journey ahead of you and make up whatever scenario you want. You want to survive that journey. Do you attribute your survival to God's care of you before you take off? What I want us to see here is in this first section is God's providence is something that ought to be heart-soothing, faith-empowering, and incredibly encouraging to his people. Knowing deeply in our heart of hearts and without question that God has revealed himself to be our watchful shepherd under whose command is every molecule of every person under whose command is every movement that every person makes, every decision that every person makes, the flight of every bird in the air, the formation of every cloud that we see, how the wind and where the wind blows, that God's providential hand is behind all of it, everywhere, all the time. That foundational truth, if you believe it by faith, cannot help but form and shape who you are. It can't help but form and shape how you relate to a world that is as messed up as ours. It can't help but form and shape how you speak, when you choose to speak, who it is you speak about, to whom it is that you are speaking. It will inform your perspective on both tragedy and triumph generally, but it will inform every moment of your existence more specifically. You see what I mean? If God is that God, the way he's revealed himself to us, it's going to have an impact in the way that you live your life. That's what faith at work means. You know something to be true, and that truth moves you to live and speak and see in certain ways. We're going to see how it impacted and informed and shaped Ezra's life in our next next part here talking about his prayer. Verses 21 through 23 is what we're going to spend our time thinking about. And I want us to think about three things regarding this prayer or this section that Ezra offers us. How and why it made a difference for him and the thousands of people he was leading. Here are the three things. Humility. We see in the prayer that it humbled him. We see that God's sovereign providence caused him to appeal to God, to ask him for things because he knew that God would deliver 
And thirdly, because God sovereignly, providentially reigns over everything, it made Ezra waste his words. Ezra understood that his words were a witness of what it was that he believed. So humility, appeal, and the weight of words as witness. Those are the three things that I want us to think about just briefly as we consider verses 21 through 23. So God's providence, when truly believed by faith, will humble us, it will compel us to appeal to the one who is reigning, and it will make us recognize the power of our words as witness. First, humility. We see it there in verse 21. Ezra had encamped all 2,000-plus people there at the river of Ahava. And at this point, this caravan hadn't even really begun to make their journey. It's like they have left Babylon, but they have not even started their 900-mile trek. So what Ezra is wanting to do is get everybody to stop, get everybody counted, and then notice what else he wants. He wants people to fast and to pray. Now, fasting is a practical exercise that does what primarily? A lot of things. But it reminds all those who are fasting that there's only one person in all of the universe that will provide what it is that we need. Fasting provides an opportunity for us to begin to die to self-sufficiency and to begin to put on the attitude that God is my provider. So that's what Ezra wanted these 2,000 plus people to do. And what does that then, what's the fruit of that? It's humility. There's nothing you or I can do to change the course of history. There is nothing Ezra or the 2,000 plus could do to change what was ahead of them on this 900-mile, four-month journey. Ezra knows, and we do too in our saner moments, that God is in control and he's directing it all. So the first part of verse 21 is Ezra leading his people to humble themselves because this is true. Secondly, appeal or ask. The second thing we see in Ezra's prayer and how God's providence is activated in his heart by faith is the second part of verse 21. Look at it there. So they've humbled themselves. They're fasting. And then look what Ezra prays. They seek from him, God, a safe journey for everyone, their children, and their goods. This is probably the easiest, most, most natural part for us to pick up on because when we pray, we typically ask God for things too. No Christian worth their name would deny that in prayer you ask God for things. So Ezra's praying that God would keep them, their children, and their goods safe. But then that poses a question, right? Safe from what? Safe from whom? Well, we saw in verse 31 a minute ago that the journey that they were about to take was through an area they were traveling close to 900 miles, and in those 900 miles, there were bandits. There were known to be ambushers. There were known to be people who would take from the journeymen whatever it is that they had. Ezra and these 2,000 people were carrying with them, get this, 25 tons of silver and 4 tons of gold not to mention the bronze that's mentioned, and not to mention all the other accoutrements for the temple. 25 tons of silver, 4 tons of gold. Now, the reason we know that that is the amount is it's given those numbers that we see there in the middle of chapter 8. We can do the math and know how much all of that weighed. And they're going to be carrying it through some very dangerous lands. What they were undertaking was an incredibly dangerous journey with an enormous amount of wealth. Ezra understood, and probably many of those who were with him, that they had a bull's eye on their back that the bandits might want to take advantage of them. 
So Ezra, believing that his God's hand is behind and in front of every step they take, asks God to keep them safe. And Ezra's faith in God's providence did a third thing. It called him to take account the power of his words as witness. Look at verse 22. Knowing that God was their protector, Ezra said he would have been, and note the word there, he would have been ashamed to ask the king to send with them, essentially the king's armed guards, the king's protective force, in case there are bandits, in case they run the risk of ambush. Ezra saying he would have brought shame on himself had he asked for the king to protect him and them on their journey. Now, if you think about this, this is a stunning act of faith informed by God's providential hand on Ezra's part. Artaxerxes, we have no reason to believe that he would not have provided this to Ezra. There's not any request that Artaxerxes has denied Ezra when he's asked. When Ezra asks, Artaxerxes gives. But there's something else bigger at play than being protected from the potential risk of the journey ahead of these second wave of exiles. It's not just that Ezra is saying, I trust God, I'm not going to ask Artaxerxes, we'll make our way. The something that's bigger at play, and this is where the shame comes in for Ezra, is Ezra's witness to Artaxerxes. Now follow me here. Ezra claims to Artaxerxes that he knew the truth about God. He has testified before Artaxerxes about God's providential hand. Now it was time for Ezra to put his faith-bearing money where his faith-speaking mouth was. Now it was time for Ezra to live what he said he believed. You see, the shame in asking the king for armed protection for the journey is rooted in Ezra's witness about the God he served to this unbelieving king. Ezra already told the king that God's hand is for good on all who seek him. Literally, God's people could count on God's good providence for them. In other words, Artaxerxes, God's got this. He will be the one guiding and protecting us on our dangerous journey. No need, Artaxerxes, for you to call out your army of protectors for us because what we believe about God is that he's our protector. But notice what else Ezra says. So he says, his good hand is on all who seek him. And then what does he, what does he say? The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So what's Ezra getting at here? I think there's probably two things going on. First, King Artaxerxes, I want you to understand, and us denying your protective care, if bandits do rob us, if they do cause us harm, if we are caught in an ambush and killed, let me tell you something else about our God. We know that the power of his wrath will be against them because they were against us. And when they're against us, he's against them. If they're coming against us, let them come. We trust a God who's going to make it right. That's the first thing, probably. Secondly, Artaxerxes, Ezra is saying, if you, most powerful king, do not seek this God, if you, unbelieving king, continue to be against him, the power of his wrath will come against you. Okay, so those are the two things in talking about the power of God's wrath 
to those who are against him. So what then would that witness be? As we're talking about two truths that God has revealed to him, what good would that be if he then said or thought, I think I will hedge my bets. What if Ezra said, Artaxerxes, I'm telling you about my God, providentially sovereign. His good hand is on those who are his people. But you are the king. You're the most powerful position on earth right now. You do have an entire army at your beck and call. You have been kind enough to grant every one of my wishes. You are the one who are sending us to Jerusalem through these 900 miles of danger. So, although I believe it, just to be safe, why don't you send along your army of protectors so that we can for sure make it to Jerusalem safely? What is Artaxerxes saying? Or what is Ezra saying to King Artaxerxes if he hedges his bets that way? What is Artaxerxes hearing about Ezra and his God if Artaxerxes is then asked to send along his protectors? What's going on there? The witness that Ezra has before Artaxerxes is completely undermined. Artaxerxes would be completely sane and right if he thought, sat back and thought, yeah, you think your God will protect you, but you need me. You need me, the king. You need my forces. You need my protection. But there's something else I want us to see in Ezra's words in verse 22, something I think is incredibly important for us today. Who is the focus of Ezra's words to Artaxerxes? Let me read it again. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. Where's the focus? We saw last week, repeated twice, Ezra was a priest. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. We saw that he set his heart to study God's word, to do God's word, set his heart towards obedience, set his heart to teach God's word. We saw last week that he has the power and the authority of the king behind him to make this journey to Jerusalem. He's an extremely gifted man, a well-studied man, a well-respected man. We would even want to say that he is an expert in his field, faithful and obedient, a gifted teacher. And yet, who's the focus of the words he speaks in verse 22? God and his providence. From beginning to end, God and his providence. Now, let's listen to that. Let's let that soak in a little bit. Ezra, this incredibly gifted man, felt the weight of his witness. We can assume that he shivered at the thought that what he might say would be would bring shame on him, Ezra, would be, bring shame on his witness, his words, and most importantly, bring shame on God. His words would not be testifying to the theology that he believed. He represented God and got it. He testified to God with his words to King Artaxerxes. And then what Ezra did, with much risk, is he lived that decision out to trust God and not the king's army. So we can see the application, I think, for me and you. What you say matters, Christian. What you say when you're angry, what, you're, what you say when you're in conflict, what you say when you lose it matters. 
How you say what you say matters, Christian. This is only to you. If you claim to believe these truths about God, and yet you say things that undermine what it is you say you believe, something's wrong. Something's off. You either don't believe it or you don't care. There's no shame for you in speaking in ways that undermine the truth you say you believe about God. If you are a believer, whether you like it or not, a witness, you are a witness on behalf of God. And the way that that witness is going to be most seen and heard, the way you're going to expose yourself is through your words. Every time you open your mouth, every time you get on your keyboard and you're arguing in the comments, or you need to post that tweet to show that you're virtue signaling, or that you're going to put up the latest research about why it is that you believe what you're saying is true. Who's the focus of all that? Where is God in any of that? It's about you, right? It's about you being right. It's about people seeing you and whatever it is that you want them to see about you. And please know, Christian, that you're running the risk of shaming him and yourself by what you say, by how you say what you say, about who you say, what it is that you're saying, and how you say that. The faith you say you may have, in fact, may be undermining, may be being undermined by the very words that you're speaking. Notice here, in everything that I just said, notice how your pet issues, your political affiliation, all your study and your research, your degrees or the hours you've spent on the internet doing all the stuff that you need to do to make your point. Notice how all of it takes a back seat to what ought to be the most important issue for every Christian. And that is the witness that you're producing by the words that you speak or type. What you say is always exposing in you what it is that you think about yourself. What you think about, most importantly, and what you believe about God. I'm not saying every time we need to say something, it needs to be a sermon. I'm not saying every time we post a status update or a tweet that we need to be pointing to God in some way. What I might be saying, though, if you're not doing that, maybe don't. Maybe don't say a word. Maybe you don't say anything. Consider your witness and who it is that you're responding to, the audience you're trying to grab. Take care in what you say. Feel the weight of your comment your status update, your tweet, feel the weight that it carries, the responsibility and perhaps the shame that's going to come along with it to your witness and to the God you say you trust. Chapter 8 is drilling into us who he is. He is committed to you and me. He will neither falter nor fail, even when we do. What glorious truths. Let's appropriate the words that we read from Romans 8 and we'll be done. Remember, the, remember when we heard these a minute ago. What then shall we say to these things? Instead of that great, beautiful line that we read in Romans 8, let's take this question for what it is that we heard in Ezra 8. What then shall we say to these things that God has revealed to us about himself? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the promise. Here's where God speaks with his words so that we know what he means. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How then will he not give up everything graciously, every good thing for us? Do you believe it? Do you know that that's true about God? 
Do your words and your life testify to him and to that? That's how you'll find the answer to that question. That's where you'll see where your witness stands. Let me pray for us. God, I do pray that you would drill this truth deeply into us. I pray that if we are warriors, we're going to be warriors about what it is that we believe about you. Whether that's happening in our homes, in our relationships full of conflict, whether that's happening online, whether it's happening even in our private thoughts, that you would remind us again and again and again that you are committed to us. And regardless of how many times we fail, you're coming to get us. May you so infect our hearts with the truth of that, that we want nothing more than to walk in a way that shows you that we believe it. This is the work of your spirit, and I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.